Well, it's become one of the favorite devices of the, uh, the elites, the uh, new oligarchs, who consider people like you and me to be too limited in our ability to grasp the higher things, so that they never cease looking for the right crisis to expand their power and control over what they consider the fetid masses. As we can see since COVID, uh, that politicians, bureaucrats, they declare a crisis, they create an emergency, they grab as much power and control as possible and fight ferociously to hang on to it. So for almost three years, we've been subjected to lockdowns, mandates, constitutional violations, unfettered unfettering of criminals, the crippling of law enforcement, uh, the making of the public less safe, all in the, tame, all in the time in the name of equity and public safety. We have health emergencies so that now monkeypox, which is like AIDS, something that plagues the, uh, the gay community um, and not the rest of us, um, we feel like we're supposed to be afraid of this and this is now a public emergency. It's an emergency that we've never had to deal with or never felt and, and justifiably we're not really threatened by it. And yet it's the opportunity to militate uh, the powers that be to do something. Uh, most non-approved regime-sanctioned sources of information, in fact, have been censored, canceled, or co-opted co-opted uh, to control the issue or the issues they want people to focus upon. So we hear it all the time. COVID hasn't gone away. It's going to come back. It, it's gone from being the, the pandemic of the unvaccined, and now it's the pandemic of the vaccined. Uh, climate change, we're being threatened continually by or gender bending or redistribution of wealth, like with the inflation reduction. Reduction Act that the Congress just passed. I mean, talking about something that should be really concerning people, there's $80 billion in this bill designed for funding the IRS so they can hire uh, an additional 60,000, 70,000 IRS agents to recover additional tax revenue. In other words, basically, there is going to greatly expand their auditing capabilities. And by the way, nobody can kind of figure out why is it that the IRS has purchased 4,500 uh, assault rifles and 5 million rounds of ammunition? Why, do, why does the IRS need to arm themselves like that? I mean, that's not even part of their mandate. Um, well, it's interesting because here again, we're told that it's these new agents need to go after the wealthy and the corporations. But the point is that uh, the people who suffer the most from these kind of things are low-income households who are five times more likely to be audited than any other group. So it's, it's a lot of misinformation that's desi designed to either keep you quiet or get you looking in the wrong way. And so just to keep us from communicating, what they do is they garble our language by offering twisted words or new definitions, false statements. They say things that are patently untrue and they state them as if they're facts and truthful. It's kind of like the Hunter Biden laptop where 50 uh, former uh, intelligence uh, officers said that it was clearly Russian disinformation. And now even the New York Times says, well, yeah, it was his laptop and all that ugly stuff on there is his, including the stuff where he impl implicates uh, the president in some of his dishonest and, and uh, unethical business dealings with foreign entities. What we end up, where we end up with is a lot of word salads. It's like watching the vice president give a speech or even the president. You sit there and go, I don't even understand what they're talking about. They're more concerned with just making sounds that sound nice than actually saying words that mean something. In fact, it, what's even even disturbing is the amount of power and authority they have because 
in 2004, George W. Bush, the president at that time, um, gave secret emergency powers to the president, and they granted him access to hit a kill switch that would turn off the internet to the access, or access to the internet to all or most Americans. In other words, we could just go dark by his command. Right now, President Biden has the power to say, stop the internet. At the moment, in other words, when if everything begins to slant in a very negative way, he has the power just to push the button and we can't communicate or talk to each other. It's kind of the problem of always having everything built around one central foundation. If all of our communication is digital, all you have to do is turn off the electricity or turn off the Internet, and suddenly we have no ability to communicate, even for our machines to communicate with each other. So what is all of this about when it's all said and done? Well, uh, what COVID and climate change and big tech and lockdowns and vaccine mandates and masking and border crisis, all these things have in common is that they create a heightened level of fear. And the biggest problem with fear is when you're really afraid, you don't think really clearly. And you tend to either want to flee, that's our first response, run away and hide, or else we want to fight, which is often equally unproductive. It's the last thing. When we're afraid, the last thing we do have is an intelligent, informed, calm conversation. Uh, Dr. Robert Malone, who is actually the architect of the mRNA vaccines or that, that uh, are the COVID-19 is made from, he's the guy that actually designed it, and he's also the guy who has been banned from Twitter and uh, a number of other uh, digital outlets because he said that this is unsafe and untried and uh, probably will have consequences that we haven't even imagined because it never has been vetted as a way a vaccine should be. You see, a vaccine usually takes seven to 10 years, according to, to uh, John Hopkins University's Medical Center. Uh, they, in their definition of vaccine, it said it takes about seven to 10 years to develop a, a healthy vaccine. Make sure it's not, it doesn't have more uh, negative effects than positive. And we did it in like seven to 10 months. And so we're beginning to see things develop. But he talked about what he saw happening in America today. He called it mass formation psychosis. Now, psychosis refers to any kind of severe mental disorder in which our thoughts and our emotions become so impaired that we lose contact with reality. I mean, we are, we are, we've created such an alternate reality in our brain that we see the world around us incorrectly. And that's where we find that people usually run scared uh, at, in the face of every new crisis that might come along. And that's kind of a conditioning. Uh, I had one of my uh, board members tell me that he has a neighbor who locked in herself in her house at the beginning of COVID and has not come out yet. She still has everything delivered and doesn't do, do any face-to-face. And you realize something has really happened. There's a kind of an agoraphobia that's taken over her life that she never had before. And I think that this happens on larger and less degrees throughout the society. Uh, Dr. Malone basically presents it this way. He says, mass formation psychosis is when a large part of a society focuses attention on one small point or issue that followers can be hypnotized and be led anywhere regardless of data proving otherwise. A key aspect of the phenomenon is that people they identify as the leaders, the ones that can solve the problem or issue alone, quote unquote, the savior, they will follow that leader regardless of any new information or data. Furthermore, anybody who questions the leader's narratives are attacked and disregarded. 
So it's kind of a crazy thing, you know, when you find people for whether it's Biden or it's Trump, that people will look at them and basically say they can do no wrong. Whatever they say, wherever they go, I will follow them. I saw an article today that said, a conservative uh, article and said, are we being disloyal to Donald Trump? And I thought to myself, I have no obligation to be loyal to Donald Trump. He's a man just like me. Now, this latest raid to his house is extremely troubling. I do think we're beginning to live in a, a, a third world uh, autocracy or dictatorship. But basically, it's this idea that we can trust human leaders. There's only one leader that I trust, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if anything goes against his word, then I'm not for it. I don't care who is the one that's promoting it. But of this kind of a mass formation psychosis, as Malone calls it, there are four key components. One, he says there's a, a lack of social bonds or decoupling of societal connections. In other words, people began to break into them and us, progressives against conservatives. It's There's a kind of a tribalism that enters in, black against white or people of color and people, I guess white people don't have color, although I think, I look at my skin, I think I have a color. It's just different. It's it's the idea that rich people are, are separated from poor people, that there's some people are inherently good and some people are inherently bad. And I know how it works. The people I agree with are good. The people I disagree with are bad. In other words, the things that kind of bring us together begin to collapse. And we, and instead of being strong in our unity, we become weak in our disunity. There, secondly, he said there's a lack of a sense of uh, making things or, or sense making of things, excuse me, of basically a sensibleness of things. You look at things and things just don't make sense. We, we look at the world and we find ourselves being confused. And the, as I talked about the word salads and the redefinitions and people, you know, saying that men can be women and vice versa. I mean, it's nonsensical and we know it's not true. And yet somehow we can't really reconcile what we're seeing with what we're thinking. And thirdly, there's this kind of a free-floating anxiety or fear, um, a psychological discontent. I mean, we don't know why we're not unhappy. We're just not unhappy. Uh, it's, there's a general sense of an easiness that is not tied to any particular object or specific situation. It is irrational fear and irrational anxiety. And again, that's what happens when we have things like masking where we don't really communicate. Since 80% of our communication is is uh, body language, well, you you know it. I mean, I'd go to the store and people would be wearing a mask and I, I couldn't tell if they were smiling at me or were they frowning at me or were they looking at me at all. This really creates kind of an, a difficulty figuring out how do we interact with people and so most people just stopped interacting altogether. The same way with lockdowns or with the taking of vaccines. Are you vaccinated or non-vaccinated? Basically became, are you good or are you bad? And see, th this kind of stuff really has a, a, a debilitating effect upon a culture. It can no longer really function cooperatively. And that's really absolutely necessary. When we talk about uh, the problem of... of uh, uh, getting goods to the market, you know, it's it's one of those things where we find that those who are involved in the transporting of goods from the making to the distribution of those goods just simply aren't on the same page. They're not working together. And so things keep on interrupting. And so the supply chain begins to stagger and, and have a, and take much longer or in some cases never to come at all. I'm working off of a new computer that was ordered many months ago, and it just arrived yesterday. So, you know, it's kind of a 
it was a frustrating thing because a year or a few years ago, it would have been here within a couple of weeks at the most. But if not, even I would have been able to go to the store and pick one up. But now it's becoming very, very difficult. Those things change how we function. We find we, that a lot of the ease of doing things is gone. So how does it end up being informed? Well, we, we find, again, by the exaggerated threats of the pandemic. I call it a condemic or a plandemic or a fodemic. I mean, I'm not saying that COVID wasn't bad and wasn't real. I, I, I had it and it was bad and I wouldn't want to ever have it again. But it also wasn't like anything I've ever had before. And it, it wasn't like just having the flu. It was, for us, it was really, really a, a, a debilitating thing that took us about three weeks to get over. Uh, but I still am thankful that I got those kind of antibodies than the non-antibodies that you get from the RNA injection. You see, but anyway, there you take again the the lockdown was based upon unfounded historical fear of infection, and it led to isolation. It had a greater negative effect and more neurotic impact than anything we could have imagined. And what's really tough is that people like Fauci and other people knew before they ever pushed for the lockdown that they had never been shown to be effective, and the general consensus was that they didn't work very well. And yet, nonetheless, they imported them because it, it gave them incredible amounts of power. When you talk about some people being essential workers and people being non-essential workers, you know, for the purposes of work and that job is essential and it's devastated businesses and families and marriages and homes. Uh, the idea of working from home and with kids learning at home or really not learning has now led to retarded development and basically, in many cases, a drop in productivity. What masking did was it blurred individual identity and it created a kind of strange virtue signaling. I still run into people who are wearing masks and, uh, you know, it's just kind of crazy. In fact, at one of our city council members, a guy stood up there wearing a mask in a room full of people that were unmasked and said, I'm watching a, a, a mass spreading of COVID in this room right now, a super spreader event, he called it. Well, Nobody there got COVID. I mean, I don't want to say the guy's living in an alternate reality. He sees the world through the lens of COVID. And so he virtue signals by wearing a mask saying, I'm superior to you because I know something that you don't know and you're too stupid to figure it out. But this also has increased, increased financial dependence upon the government. When we talk about having basic minimum income or stimulus checks or talking about moratorium on, on student loans or really the paying off of student loans or subsidized rents and all of these things. You know, if you're in a financial crush, your jobs are taken away. I can understand why this would be attractive. But the reality is these things have long-term consequences. The person who owns that apartment building that you're living in and renting that space, their bills, their their money monthly payment doesn't get suspended or doesn't get extended, they're still going to have to put out that money. And when they finally took away the rent controls, what happened? Well, the price of rent skyrocketed. And what do we know? we got a shortage of housing to go along with it. it. It just created all sorts of horrible consequences. And that was, you know, on one level, I look at the people who are leading the government, and they are the most uh, incompetent group of people I think they could have found for these jobs. They were picked for their gender identity or political loyalties rather than for their capabilities. But the simple sense is that... Um, what they're real, these are just the useful idiots that behind them are power brokers who are using them to pass these crazy laws and rules and regulations and policies in order to bring about change. 
And that's why even the change and say, you know, we follow the science. Well, nobody can follow the science because science never is consistent anymore. It's always changing. And that's not a new problem. I mean, it was understood, you know, five or six years ago, I read an article that said that 50% of all uh, research papers and, and grants that are given have falsified uh, evidence. As we find with Alzheimer's disease now, the basically the landmark uh, research that, uh, study that was done to treat, to figure out what was the cause of Alzheimer's and how to treat it now has been revealed to be have been fraudulent that even the slides showing the brain and different things were photoshopped and it's amazing because the guy who headed up that research was just given another five million dollars by the government and interestingly the guy at the NIH who gave him the grant also was part of his team so basically he gave his buddy a grant to continue doing something that he and the other guy knew were fraudulent to begin with and I wonder if they'll be prosecuted Probably not, not in this environment. That's why when we find things like uh, mandates that uh, even the elites will cheat on, but basically they're elites, so it doesn't really apply to them. Or we see the canceling culture, the control of information, and the isolation. We see deprivation, where uh, inflation just destroys and eats away at people's savings and their retirements. There's shortages of fuel, and fuel. they're saying that the consumption of fuel has gone down. And it has, because the cost has gone so high. Uh, the only good thing is the best cure for high prices Prices, it's high prices. But the, the, the supply chain disruptions are in many ways manufactured by layers and layers and layers of regulation that make it harder and harder for truckers and others to deliver their goods. And what it does is it makes people dependent upon the government rather than dependent upon God. That uh, we are so in love with feeling secure that we're willing to trade our security, our freedoms for more security. And then there's the issue of moral confusion. I mean, when Disney, I mean, it's hard to believe. I mean, I grew up watching Walt Disney and on TV. I mean, when he was still alive. And, and now their theme is uh, a racial equity. Uh, one quote they put out, they said, whiteness is the overarching disease. So suddenly the color of my skin is a disease that I need to be cured from. And then he goes on, to be less white is to be less oppressive, less arrogant, and less certain, to be less defensive, less ignorant, and more humble. Listen. And I got a feeling that probably came out of the mouth of a white woman. In fact, I know it did. So <laughs> she is everything in her whiteness that she says we shouldn't be in our whiteness, except she's less white because, well, she said so. So if you can declare your gender, why can't you declare your whiteness? Basically, they seek to remove all of the absolutes, which are the consistence, the, the foundational things, and they begin to bend everything, including gender, and that leads to increasing confusion. Uh, Natasha Crane is an author who wrote a book called Faithfully Different. It was written to Christians who were confronted by a changing culture. And I love the way she summarized uh, six things about the culture that we're living in. She says, feelings are now the ultimate guide. There's no absolutes, there's no right or wrong, there's no true or false. It's just what you feel. Secondly, she said happiness is the ultimate goal. It's, and it's the key. <laughs> the, but the problem is people who live to be happy are the most unhappy people in the world because happiness is something that overtakes you by surprise. It's not something that you can force yourself to be unless you put yourself into a zen-like trance. Uh, thirdly, judging is the ultimate sin. And so you stifle all critical commentary. Anybody who asks a question that doesn't conform to the narrative suddenly is attacked for being a troublesome person or, a, or, or an enemy. 
But fourthly, God, they said, is the ultimate guess. In other words, if you say you know anything certain about God, then you don't know anything at all because you can only guess about God. You can never say anything absolutely certain. And so when you begin to buy into that, especially as a Christian, where does that lead you? You, you, you stop reading the Bible, you stop going to church, you stop hanging around or even talking to other people about Christ because what do you know? You're just guessing. And then the fifth thing she said is normal is the new definition of good. <laughs> normal is a new definition of good. Well, it's, uh, what does that mean? Well, essentially, if you say something is normal, then it's good. So if I say that homosexuality is normal, then it becomes good. If I say transsexuality is normal, then it's good. If I say divorce is normal, then it's good. In other words, you lose any ability to make critical judgments. In fact, the very word critical and judgment are banished from the vocabulary of many of these people, unless, of course, they're critically judging people who use words like critical judgment. And then sixthly, she said, judging something as abnormal is the personification of evil. There's no worse thing that you can do to say that something is abnormal. And I get in trouble all the time because I say not only is transsexuality and homosexuality abnormal, I say it's a perversion. Uh, the Bible says it's an abomination. And I mean, I don't say that because I want to uh, hurt somebody's feeling. I just want to give an accurate description, according to the Word of God, what these things are. A perversion means you're doing something in a way that was never intended to be done, and it's going to create bad, real evil. That makes it abominable because it brings about a hurt. Again, I'm kind of beating this horse until it has no hide left. I understand that. But all of this has consequences. It all has a result. Um, and it does so because we live in, in a, uh, a world that's subject to what we call entropy. They're, these are the laws of nature, that the material world is always going from a place of order to disorder. It's called decay. And cultures decay and the only way you can really resist decay is to work hard at repairing the damage. And so, you know, uh, sometime in this next year, I'm going to have to have my house repainted. Uh, in the past, I did it myself. I'm not going to do that again. That was too much work. But the bottom is that it has to be done because the paint isn't getting newer all the time. It's getting older. And if I let it decay, it'll begin to cause decay to make its way into the structure itself. And eventually, my house will be a wreck. So the only way you can fight the law of nature, of entropy, of decay, is that you have to work against it. And yet, in a time when we're seeing this kind of decay come into our culture, many Christians are just kind of stepping aside and saying, well, I don't want to take a stand, and I don't want to be political, and you know, I don't want to be controversial, and I don't want to be unloving. And so in your gesture of love, you allow loveless things to happen, people to destroy uh, other people's lives. It's not just a matter of seeing, seeing conservative ideals sustained. The very word conservative means you try to conserve, you try to save, you try to keep something functional that otherwise would be unfunctional. And so I take my cars in regularly, they have them serviced because I want to conserve them and have them last as long as they can. And if I don't, if I neglect that, what's going to happen? They're eventually going to die before they reach their full maturity or their natural life cycle because I just didn't want to take the time to conserve what I had. So it's really important that we understand that if we just neglect our culture, our society, our nation, our communities, and just turn a blind eye to what's going on and wave a, a fairy wand of love over people, they're just going to fall apart all on their own. 
We have to put energy into being agents of conservation, not agents of change, but agents of conserving the things that are good. If there are bad things, we don't do anything to help them. We let them die away. So when people commit criminal behavior and they do it over and over and over again, then we put them someplace where they can no longer do damage to other people. We just let them wither away on their own. And that's how we conserve the rest of society. Releasing them endlessly with no bail has the opposite effect. You would think that smart people could figure that out. But secondly, we have to understand that our world is this way because it's the way of sin. Sin and its effect is unrelenting. And when you couple that with our fallen nature, the pull is irresistible to the person who does not have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. If you're not a born again of Christ, you don't have Jesus living in your heart, then you don't have the power to live what we would call a godly life. We oftentimes expect unregenerate people to behave in a regenerate way. The simple fact is that the only way we can behave in a regenerate way is having been regenerated. And unregenerated people are always going to end up drifting into things that we would call sin. I'm not saying they're inherently bad people or they're even worse than other people, but they don't have really the ability to consistently do good. That only comes by the help of the Holy Spirit. But the thing is that once the Holy Spirit uh, or once sin takes hold of people's minds, it makes even very smart people dumb, dense, and dopey. I used to always say sin makes people stupid, and that you see it all the time, and the Bible tells us, especially when we come into the last days, that people are going to become more and more sin-oriented and are going to become sociopathic in their personality and their behavior. And that's why we also have to look at the third thing, that not only do we live in a, a broken world, and not only do we have a penchant for sinning, but also there is a lawless one, a demonic personality in the world who has a minion of fallen angels who support him, who are simply seeking to bring that strong delusion upon the world so that people will believe all his lies. And uh, basically, he, he is one who works in all kinds of counterfeit things, counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And he says, it goes on, it says in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul puts it this way in verse 10, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. So, you know, it behooves us to be really on our toes, to be really looking at these little incremental things that are changing all around us every day so that we can uh, identify them and we can begin to speak out against them, to make it known that we don't agree. It's amazing how powerful it is when one person simply says, I do not agree with that and I'm not going to go along with that. You know, people, you're on a job and you just simply say, no, I do not agree with the HR's new policy because it's not based upon truth, and as a Christian, we stand fast. Right now, we have 60,000, 70,000 military personnel who are going to be dismissed by the military because they will not take the vaccine. I had one young airman told me he's been a, in the service for 13 years. He says, all of my buddies, the guys in my company, have, have taken the shot, most of them having heart issues and other health issues. In fact, 10% of people who got the vaccine regret they got the vaccine. Another 15% said they're having health complications because of the vaccine. Uh, and right now, the Pfizer and, and, and Moderna and others are paying out millions and millions to people who've had adverse effect, but they're doing it under the uh, silently. Instead of going to court, they just have them hold, sign a, a agreement that they will, a non-disclosure agreement, so they won't talk about it. 
But the simple fact is there are a significant amount of people who have been damaged by the effects of this vaccine. Well, to say all of that, people basically, he said they perish for one reason, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And it, it, think about this for a moment. Some people really don't want to know the truth. They don't want it because it means they have to change their life. They have to change their lifestyle. So they would rather continue to deceive themselves so they continue living the way they're living. And that's why Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. He says, essentially, if someone doesn't want to see value in the gospel, you can't make them see value in the gospel. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So if you share with somebody and they reject it and aren't interested, then move on and wait till you find the next person who is interested. But he says, uh, in the end, he says, all these people will be condemned who have not believed the truth. But listen to this last phrase, have delighted in wickedness. Have delighted in wickedness. You know, there's an interesting progression. The Bible talks about ungodliness, and then it talks about evil, and then it talks about wickedness. And that's a progression. Ungodliness means you leave God out of the equation. You live life as if God isn't there. And there are a lot of professing Christians who live like atheists. I mean, they believe in the Lord and they talk, they go to church. Maybe they even read their Bible. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day living of their life, they never use the word of God or God himself as a reference point for what they're doing. We would say essentially there's very little fear of God, if any, in their life. They don't fear the consequences of their decisions so they don't really uh, tremble at God's word when they realize that they have been going against it. So they, they're just ungodly, like uncola, you know, it's just, it's not there. And he may be living in their heart, they may be born again, but this is the classic example of the Christian who is choked off in the weeds and has become unproductive, ineffectual in their Christian life because Christ is not, he's an afterthought, he's not a forethought. But secondly, ungodliness leads to evil, because if you haven't considered God, then you make decisions, you're probably going to do something that's wrong. It's not right. Whether it's an attitude or action, it's going to come out as being something that doesn't glorify the Lord and really is really what we would call sinful in thought and deed and word. And when that becomes habitual, when you delighted in that, then you become wicked. And there are a lot of people who are wicked because they love the way they live, they, they delight in uh, the way that they win, the way they, they enrich themselves, the way they take control of the situation, the way they make themselves large and in charge rather than being humble. And it's amazing because these people rarely, if you say to us, you know, what you're doing is wicked, they would get so upset with you because, as Jesus said, if you throw pearls among swine, not only will they trample them, but then they'll attack you. And that's the most amazing thing. They'll attack you because you somehow have pointed to something that should be obvious to everyone. Well, I could go on endlessly with these kind of uh, illustrations, and I know that you don't have the time. Probably you may not even still have the interest. But there again, I hope that this is helpful. Uh, I really am trying to make us more and more aware of what's going on around us so, so that we don't become boiled frogs. Uh, that we'll hop out of the pot and we'll try to get other people to hop out of it as well and uh, and see if somehow we can change things. Because I think that uh, we are in the end times, I believe that, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that America has to go down the toilet. I think that when God makes the promise in Chronicles, he says, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. 
then God says, I'll heal their land. So I pray that God heals America. But I think he has to start with the church. I think that Christians have to begin to get clear on who they are and what their mission is and why they're here. And they need to speak out and testify to the truth. And I think that's going to cause a breaking away. I see a big split. It's happening already between what is Orthodox Christianity, true biblical Christianity, and the new forms, the more fashionable forms of unorthodox Christianity, people who deny Christ, deny Scripture, and so forth. And I think that's good. I think it's happened because at least we'll know who the Christians are, but also it usually leads to persecution, which is kind of the downside of it. But persecution has always been the most effective tool, not only for purifying the church, but also for reaching the lost. Throughout history, it's interesting when you look at this, when you look at the history of the church, whenever the church has been under or wherever the church has been under intense persecution, it's grown exponentially. Because people see that Christians are willing to die for something and not just live for something. They're willing to sacrifice their very life because they have something that is better and higher. You know, when Christ expired on the cross, what was it the centurion said who was overseeing his crucifixion? He sees the way Jesus died and he said, truly, this is the Son of God. And there's something powerful in that when we're willing to lay down our lives. And that's part of the question I probably would leave with you. Are you, as a Christian, really willing to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel? Would you deny Christ to save your own skin? Well, in Job 1 and 2, Satan says that that's what you do. But Job, what really marked Job out wasn't that he was sinless. Not that he ever made a mistake or did anything wrong. He said a bunch of stuff he had to apologize to God later for. But the thing was that he didn't deny the Lord. He stayed true to him as best he could. And when we do that, we'll see some things that are pretty significant. Well, God bless you. Go in his grace. Until next time, this is Ken Ortiz. Bye-bye.